It's another episode of The Value Legacy. I'm Tim Elliott. Once again, Vinod Krishnan, the Managing Director of Arch, the people behind this podcast, is here with me. Uh, Vinod, good to see you. Festive greetings to you, first of all. Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here. It's all good cheer all around us, except for this new variant, which is beginning to threaten uh, normal lives. And I hope this is only a blip in the full path to recovery. I hope so. I mean, from what we're hearing, it should be a slightly less threatening variant. Fingers crossed. Um, if not, let's look ahead at the next uh, podcast, our next episode. Uh, I'm excited about who we're going to be talking to today. Tell me, first of all, a little bit more about today's guest. So Mark Falbo and I've known each other for a few years now, and he's been a friend of Arch ever since. One of the fascinating aspects of Mark's family business for me has been that all three brothers, Mark and his two brothers, cut their teeth in the various facets of business management before they joined their own family business. That Mercom, North America's largest independent designer, manufacturer and distributor of life safety equipment, is led by these three brothers as a family-owned business has been a motivation for us to request Mark to share their story with the listeners of The Value Legacy. Our guest this time on The Value Legacy is the president of the Mercom Group of Companies, Mark Falbo. Now, Mercom is a global technology company. It's based in Vaughan in Ontario in Canada. It's located in the regional municipality of York, and it's just north of Toronto. Mercom provides sophisticated fire detection and alarm, security and communications and smart building systems technologies. And it's North America's largest independent designer, manufacturer and distributor of life safety equipment with clients in over 100 countries. It's also the value legacy, a family business that traces its beginnings back to the 1960s. Mark, it's a great pleasure to welcome you. Tim, thank you very much for having me. And, uh, before we begin, just let me let me commend you and Vinod on this excellent uh, podcast series, the great work you're doing for family business uh, around the world. Kind of you to say so. It's, it's also good of you to take the time to join us, uh, even though a little bit of traffic issues uh, earlier on. Do you know, it's a real pleasure to speak to someone who runs an international family business outside of the UAE. It's just that different perspective that I, I guess you're going to bring to this. It's a business that was started by your father. It continues today under the leadership of yourself and your two brothers. And that's where I wanted to start. Before we come to the, the Mercom story, uh, of what it's, uh, how it's become what it's become now. Let me start with a quote from you. Uh, and I like this. It's important for entrepreneurs to surround themselves with a core group of people who share and execute on a very strong vision for the company. Now, it seems to me that's something that you and your brothers must have grown up with almost, I suppose, almost an innate understanding of what your father was building. Is, is that anywhere near close? I think it's very accurate. We often uh, joke that rather than having uh, plush teddy bears in our uh, baby cribs, we used to have uh, firearm products as uh, as uh, toys to play with. So definitely been a part of our history from uh, very early days. <laughs> Health and safety is ingrained, I think, in you and your siblings. I think that's correct. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, I, I really want to jump in and uh, talk about the dynamics of how it is working with two brothers. I mean, I guess growing up, there were the usual arguments and fights and, and you know, uh, rivalries, as you would expect with boys growing up. Um, what? How does the dynamic work between the three of you in the company? So it's an excellent question, and, and I get it from other family businesses often. Uh, you know, I, I think we've been very purposeful in the relationship that we share and enjoy at the business level. Um, you know, we, we talk about family governance. We talk about brothers coming together, fighting hard in the closed doors of a boardroom, but then really uh, coming forward to the organization with a uh, with solidarity in, uh, in decision and strategy. I can't profess that we're always great at that. There are uh, obviously times when uh, when uh, you know, different viewpoints or differing directions uh, may permeate to uh, uh, beyond the boardroom, but for the most part, I think we've nailed that pretty well. I think you know, right from when we joined um, uh, the company, uh, we had a purposeful approach to how the family would interact with the business. And so, you know, for example, uh, all three of us worked outside of the business before we came to the business. So there was uh, experience built, there were networks uh, gained, there was uh, uh, you know self sufficiency outside of the business, and then you come to the business bringing your individual strengths. We've been fortunate that uh, the three brothers largely have a, uh, in some cases similar, but in some cases, uh, uh, broader experiences that, that not all of us uh, possess. So for instance, my background was in finance and law, uh, Rick uh, largely in economics and finance as well, but Jason was a software engineer um, uh, with a technical background. And so as we divided duties, you know, I, I'm general manager, president, CEO of the group, Jason's our chief technology officer, and Rick uh, focuses as a senior sales and marketing leader in business development. Uh, the way we came to the business was also uh, purposeful. I, I, you know, when we decided that we would make a go of the next generation family business, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, but when we made that decision back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, we, we contemplated, should everybody join it? once should we stagger the way we come into the business how do we respect the legacy management that's there in the business but also make a contribution impact and so i decided to you know i i, I worked once we made that decision i i had to extricate myself from my um, my responsibilities in finance uh, i worked for a, a, an m a uh, organization uh, it took about a year before i left that and joined the company we decided that rick would join the company two years later once uh, once I'd been absorbed into it, so to speak, and Jason would join uh, a number of years after that. And so, you know, we all came in with a with a perspective of of yes, understanding the industry and having grown up with it, but also with a keen mind to to learn uh, the business. And so, Dad often says, "You have uh, two eyes and two ears and one mouth. Use it in that proportion." And so, uh, we came in uh, trying to uh, trying to listen and learn before we really made uh, active decisions. At the same time, as a family, we knew where we wanted to head with the business, and so we uh, we created a strategy and and resourcing around that. Um, you know, a bit of a long-winded answer, but I, I you know we didn't just fall into it. I think uh, I think the brothers really had a, a keen vision of how our family would interact with the broader business for you know, uh, risk mitigation and for improving our chances of success. It sounds as though that it was almost a strategic uh, approach, but you 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 took that approach with a real respect for the values that were already apparent in the business. It seems that was important to you. It, it was. I mean, we, as you noted uh, in your in your earlier comments, the 
the business in one configuration or another had existed from the 1960s. And uh, there were a lot of people that grew with it and had legacy. At the same time, we recognized that, you know, if, if the brothers were to join the business and plan the next um, decade or two of, uh, of, of business growth, things also needed to adapt, to change. They needed to adapt to new conditions. And, uh, and so we really tried to leverage the strength of the old and infuse the new and hopefully one plus one equaled uh, three. I think, uh, I think we've proven up that model for the most part. Uh, but yeah, it was, there was a, uh, an appreciation and sensitivity to, to respecting what came before, but also driving forward. How often does your father have to come in and mediate between the brothers, Mark? Is he, is he still a presence that um, has a, is it a light touch from a guiding hand still? You know what it's been, I think for him, it's been an excellent uh, evolution of the business model to have his kids involved in the sense that, you know, he, he now gets to choose whether he wants to participate more actively, less actively. He can come in and out uh, given periods of time. He's, he's fortunate in that, uh, you know, the Canadian winters are pretty harsh and they spend uh, four months uh, down in, uh, in the south of, uh, of the United States. So, you know, those are periods where he's a little less active when he's back uh, in Toronto over the spring and summer months. He loves coming to the office. He loves engaging with management, some of which are still legacy management that have been around uh, with him for, for decades. Um, you know, with respect to the dynamic of the brothers, uh, for sure, he's, he's, he's a, a voice of experience and guidance. At the same time, uh, I think, you know, kudos to him. He's been able to let go of the reins and uh, he'll joke that he works for us today versus the other way around. Uh, I don't know how much truth that is there is to that on, on any given day. But again, it's a it's a purposeful approach to how the family interacts so that, you know, the business is considered uh, as important as any family member. In fact, it's a family member of its own. And so if we maintain that independent thought on the business, uh, then the family dynamic should not uh, be the overarching uh, influence uh, at any given time. I want to talk in some detail about your father, because I feel like that's a fascinating story coming from, you know, from Italy in the 60s, the 1960, I think uh, it was. I want to talk about that in a moment. But you've said a couple of things that kind of resonate with me. And it was it was actually Jason. Uh, Jason's your youngest brother. Is that correct? Our youngest brother. Yeah. That's correct. Our, our CTO. He uh, said something that I think kind of sets you apart in some ways. Our company is privately owned, but we serve the public. Uh, as a family business, we don't have to cut corners to reach quarterly targets. And that all indicates to a slightly different approach to me. For us, Jason says, it's more important to do the job right with public safety at the core of every decision we make. Is that the differentiator for Mercom? Look, we, we don't speak ill of our large multinational competitors. I mean, we have a healthy respect for what they do. I do think as a family business, however, we do have the luxury in, in some respects that they, they don't in that we're not driven by quarterly results or investor relations or the need to necessarily uh, 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 promote and, and publicize information uh, that is better held in check as we develop it and evolve it. So I think the, the ability of family businesses to take a more measured, patient approach to their investments, you know, accept lower margins, if you have to, as an example, uh, uh, develop the market in a, in a, in, in a more uh, capital intensive way that doesn't necessarily have short-term uh, IRR associated with it, not to suggest that you don't need the financial disciplines in every business, but as a family business, for sure, we have the luxury of saying, look, we believe in this 
strategy. And if it, whether it takes a quarter or four or, or three years to execute, we, we have that patience of, uh, of purpose, that patience of capital to say, this is the approach we're going to take. And we're going to engage the market in a uh, softer, kinder way, if you, if you will. Again, not, not taking anything away from the competition, but you know, people expect that in a family business, there's a little bit more access to uh, executive management and ownership. There's a little bit more direct involvement at times. It's not universally the case, but where family members are active, I think our, our market and our clients have definitely benefited over the years from our uh, active involvement in the business. And, and as I say, at times, a little bit more patience in, in executing strategy. It also seems to me that there's there's a slight difference in in family businesses, and particularly in your your approach, uh, and that comes through in your attitude to change. Change is a hard thing for for lots of people, but your attitude to change is very much expect it. It's a constant imperative. It's necessary. It's good, which I I, I guess is a great mentality uh, to promote. It's all too often lacking in businesses, isn't it? And that I guess promotes an agility. In how you operate? It does. I think uh, our team's uh, muscles are well-developed in, in change management because it, it, it is, uh, paradoxically, the norm. Uh, mm. at, at the end of the day, businesses need to continue to evolve and pivot. I think as we learn more about the industry, the competition, the customer needs, our staff uh, aspirations, opportunities, uh, the company is constantly looking for ways to improve and uh, sometimes that means disruption. It means changing things almost 180 degrees if you decided a strategy is not necessarily executing the way you, you need it to. Um, and again, as a family business, there's a, a, a much leaner hierarchy of decision-making. Uh, there's a danger that you can be, that one can be capricious in changing course, uh, not what we intend to do, but at, uh, at the same time, you know, it, 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 there's a lot less angst associated with introducing change, whether it's in, in technology and in, in geography and in, in channel approach and vertical approach and in, in you know, business opportunity. Um, there's, there's just, as you say, we, we, we live it all day, every day, and we've lived it for 20 years. And so I think to a person in this company, if, something, uh, if something's changing, it's not perceived as a threat or a burden or a concern or, or, or any of those uh, more negative uh, connotations, but rather it's yeah, this is this is what we do, and this is how we grow, and this has been uh, the success and strength of the company. Let me talk to you about your father, and I guess your grandparents as well, because they came uh, to Canada from Italy in 1960, yeah. uh, looking, I, I guess, for uh, opportunity. Your dad was 16, had an interest in electronics. I know that, and I know he took uh, night courses. That led to a role at uh, Mertone, which was uh, a residential intercom uh, fire detection and alarm system business in the 70s. Mertone became the second largest fire alarm manufacturing company in Canada, sold to a Fortune 500 company uh, in the late 80s. What led your dad to go that way? Was it just this, this electronic uh, flair that he had? Was it something he knew he needed to do? Was it just one of those things? How did it work? Yeah, I, you know, part part was interest, part was uh, necessity. So uh, I think when uh, you know my my dad's family uh, and my mom's family were from southern Italy, and in the uh, post-war period, 40s and 50s, not a, a lot of opportunity, economic opportunity. A lot of families that started to migrate uh, uh, away from uh, from those bases into 
uh, you know, Canada, the United States, uh, Australia, South America, and Argentina. Uh, Canada was a, a desirable location, you know, growing as a, as a nation itself, uh, uh, you know, somewhat developed, but still underdeveloped in a lot of ways. And they were bringing people in from um, uh, Western Europe at the time. You, you, you find these waves of different uh, nationalities coming over decades. But at that time in the uh, 50s and 60s, I think uh, there was a prevalence of Western European immigration to Canada. And, um, you know, some of my dad's father's uh, uh, relatives had, had paved their way here in the 50s, worked in mining and transportation and uh, in various jobs. Uh, and then one by one, we're bringing family over. And my dad's family was, uh, was called in, in 1960, as you noted. Uh, they came not speaking the language, not understanding the culture, uh, experiencing the, uh, the cold of Canada versus the warmth of uh, Southern Italy. Uh, so I'm sure very, very difficult times for them, but they, they banded together and each uh, found, found their path. My dad, uh, perhaps uh, with the lack of language initially and, and a mathematical inclination, as you said, was uh, working part-time to help support the family, but taking night school courses. Uh, electronics was obviously an area of interest and math was an area of interest. And, uh, uh, you know, as, as the story goes, he found a job with a, uh, a fellow that was uh, moonlighting. He was an electrician by day and uh, building home intercoms in his garage at night. So it was just a very, very micro organization, two or three uh, people uh, starting up. And they, they built these uh, radio intercoms from front door to kitchen to bedroom for communication. And as you can imagine, in the 1960s, that was pretty high tech, along with uh, washing machines. And uh, I don't know if microwaves had even been uh, introduced at that point. So um, that, that kernel of a business grew into uh, voice paging, voice evacuation, fire detection and alarm in, in multi-tenant uh, applications. The original founder moved, uh, moved out of the business, moved south to the U.S. and a new partner, majority partner came in who was not, a, was not an operator, it was more of a financial partner. And uh, that created opportunity for, uh, for my dad to really uh, become a minority partner in the business and, uh, and take the operations uh, lead for it. And so through the 60s, 70s, 80s, they grew that business um, in Canada, but also into the United States. Uh, the majority owner uh, decided that it was time for a sale in the late 80s. And so uh, that's when he, uh, he sold the business to a Fortune 500 company that owned the, uh, the largest competitor in Canada. Uh, Dad was out of the market for a number of years with a non-compete clause uh, in manufacturing and design for sure and started uh, just uh, as a local uh, distributor and service company in, in Toronto again to get things starting. Uh, but the, the real passion was to get back into design, engineering, product portfolio, you know, direct relationships, and this time uh, in, in his control, uh, firmly in his control. And that, was, that helped the family decision down the road because, again, if, uh, if the family was to leave all the experiences that we were uh, having uh, outside of the organization, then we needed that control element. And so he, he's been a great entrepreneur. He's been a great uh, business leader. He developed, he had a clear path. You know, one of the reasons that we came to the business was there was another pivot point uh, in the late uh, 1990s where he could have sold the business to a large multinational competitor that was rolling up uh, uh, like independent businesses uh, at that time. And when we spoke with him, you know, the motivation was never just about the uh, the payday or the money. It was about what we were doing in technology and life safety and international relations. And that was really inspirational for us to say, you know, this is a, this is a great opportunity to, 
maintain the course with this business. And yes, if we need to compete against large multinationals, so be it. But we can uh, we can carve our path and build our relationships. And and that's you know a, a lot of credit goes to his mindset and his uh, vision at the time. So. Well, it clearly does because, you know, he built Mertone, really. He became president of the company and really built it into uh, some of the second largest fire alarm manufacturing company in Canada uh, and then built Mercom as well, which I guess when he started in the early 90s was a high uh, interest rate environment. It was tough times to, t- to, to start something again. Yeah, for sure. The early 90s uh, here in, uh, in Ontario, Canada generally, but definitely in Ontario, there was a there was a real estate recession. Interest rates were double digit, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 percent interest rates. Uh, uh, obviously, the product portfolio was very limited at the time. And so you're you're, you're really bringing a, a limited company with financial constraints to the market. And again, it's life safety. So customers really need to trust that you're going to be here today and tomorrow and you're going to support their needs. And so kudos to the relationships that he built and the people that gave uh, gave the first opportunities to say, okay, we trust what you're doing and we trust you and we'll support you. And from that kernel in the early 1990s, you know, it's uh, it's like a snowball, uh, another uh, reference he likes to give you know the snowball is hard to form at the uh, at the outset but once it starts picking up momentum and uh, and rolling it uh, it grows and so the, those early days were were very challenging uh, and credit to the team that he built around him and the relationships that he had uh, you know we're grateful for that uh, that support I have to give the Canadian government a little uh, uh, pat on the back as well at the time they had programs to help uh, help uh, the country invest in uh, research and development and technology and provided some necessary funding to help uh, help uh, fund the initial uh, research and design for for the new product uh, portfolios what interests me about that is that there was a very clear as much as i can tell a, a real passion for what your father was doing that you, you've obviously inherited but it strikes me that that's a real differentiator to your customers because you have this family-owned family-operated company you've been under consistent ownership for three decades there's a there's a trust value that builds there isn't there absolutely i think uh and it works both ways you know the family continues to invest because we trust that uh, you know our relationships with suppliers and customers and staff are, are sticky and valued um i think they trust that we're going to continue to make the right investments and right decisions to support their needs and so it has been a, a symbiotic relationship over uh, three decades to to grow the business, uh, you know, initially here at home base in Canada. So the, the larger Canadian markets, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, uh, Calgary, and others, um, and then to export abroad. You know, Canada fundamentally, is, as you know, is a, is a relatively small uh, nation, uh, you know, 35 million-ish uh, population, whereas you've got uh, cities and states that have uh, that population or more. And so the mindset has always been, you know, be strong at home and build a foundation at home, but you know, let, let's definitely engage with the global markets. Let's export abroad. Let's build those relationships. Let's uh, let's prove our worth in uh, in global markets. And so, I often say we we start thinking about Canada, but uh, we quickly pivot to uh, to a global and export focus often as well. Your vision is to make. Uh, safer, smarter, more livable buildings. That's very clear from your website, from all the literature I've uh, read about you. Um, but it's developing that internationally now, isn't it? That the, the drive to be able to do that. I know you have an office here in Dubai, you're working out of Bangalore, uh, in India, and a number of different countries now. Uh, but going forward, 
that vision, I guess, remains the same. But what do you add on to that? Well, you know, within that envelope, there's a world of opportunity. I, I say every newly constructed building and every 20-year-old building that needs to you know, invest in itself and, and, and come to codes and standards that, that continue to improve globally are opportunities for our products. You know, fundamentally, we, we sense environmental conditions, we control them, we communicate them. And so there's, there's you know, within the, the purview of that smart building technology, there's a world of opportunity. Uh, you know, obviously, as you move to IP, wireless, uh, uh, internet of uh, things, uh, uh, sensing devices and communication, there's just lots and lots of opportunity ahead. And so we're, we're you know, many respects, despite being around 30 years, we're still scratching the surface. I think there's a, a long way to go and a lot of optimism about how we can contribute. Uh, you know, the temptation, obviously, on the other side is to try and be too many things to too many people. And that's not a recipe that, uh, that, that is successful generally, uh, and maybe especially at the smaller family uh, business level. So we do want to stick to the core product technologies and core competencies that we have. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, the larger we get, the more opportunities we get, the more calls we get from people wanting to, uh, uh, to, to, to partner, to joint venture, to sell their products to us, to have us distribute, to have us buy. But the, the reality is we need to be disciplined in those opportunities as well. Uh, sticking to our, our core strategies as, uh, uh, as closely in some respects as we can, but you know, pushing the envelope uh, uh, where it makes sense and it's still consistent with product technology and strategy. Uh, Mark, from the perspective of social capital, the connections, the, the partnerships, the relationships you have, the big one is, I guess, government. What do you think as a family business head, uh, what do you expect from government as a family business head? You know, governments are obviously partners in, in any business, um, you know, along with uh, your bank partners, along with your suppliers, uh, your staff, your customers. It's a, uh, I mentioned it prior, it's a bit of a symbiotic relationship. Obviously, government is going to uh, regulate. The, on, uh, in some opportunities, they provide opportunities and resources. In others, they regulate the way you conduct your business. In others, they, they have their own strategies for, for growth and, and how the industry works. So we've been active with government partners at municipal, provincial, federal levels. We've engaged with uh, Canadian representatives and U.S. representatives abroad, you know, always, always with a view to, to try and understand what their objectives are and how we operate within those while still achieving our own strategies. The conversations, uh, the, the best conversations are the ones where we talk about growth and opportunity. The worst are when we talk about, you know, inefficient or, or restrictive uh, policies that, that impede our ability to execute to strategy and business growth. I think uh, you know we have healthy relationships. We invite government partners to our our facilities often. They, they we try and educate on what we're attempting to do. I think Mercom, and if I look at the Canadian context, you know we're 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 unique. There's not another Canadian company um, designing, manufacturing, distributing uh, the the products with you know home base in mind necessarily. We compete against the world's giants. Uh, who are operating in our market. But I think from a Canadian perspective, we're really trying to explain to our government partners that, you know, this is this is a very worthy uh, endeavor in life safety and technology and export markets and international relations. 
Canada, as, as you're well aware, is very well known for its commodity resources, you know, some traditional sectors, uh, obviously a strong uh, base here within the domestic economy for real estate and, uh, and other activities. But the real export opportunities, we, we really like Mercom's position as a life safety technology company that has a global focus. Uh, and wants to invest for growth. That's the other thing. You know, our, our mandate is always to continue to grow. It's not as if you know, some families that I've talked to uh, you know, with full respect for their decisions have reached a certain level where they, they now, the, the business supports the family objectives and you know, they'd rather not take on more risk, uh, capital risk, financial risk, human resource risk, uh, expansion risk, business risk. Uh, that's, not, that's not our mindset, never has been our mindset. Our mindset is continue to to grow. We, we always feel like we're in the middle of the pond and you can either swim back to shore or you can swim to the other side. We've always chose to swim to the other side, but we, we just, you know, for our business, we don't feel like we can tread water in the middle of the lake and, and survive long-term. And so that, that's just never been our philosophy. Uh, you know, I think we we're fortunate that the type of business that we're in, again, life safety, security, uh, very relevant building technologies, makes it a little easier to engage with people around the world. The conversations are, are more ample, the opportunity for people doing very interesting things and, and potentially needing our, our services or our products is, is great. And so, you know, I think the, the, the markets that we serve, the segments that we serve, we lend themselves to ever-growing social relationships. And so uh, the other element of the, the social capital, I think, for our business somewhat related is I, I tell everybody right down to the, to sometimes people inserting a diode on a board that, you know, your, your function isn't about inserting that diode or that resistor, the capacitor, at the end of the day, you're creating a control unit that gets hung on a wall where people sleep, they live, they work, they play, whether it's daycares or schools or residential environments, you know, there's, a, there's a bit of a calling here to, to the product that we serve. And so I think to a person, everybody throughout the company can take pride in, in the life safety and security aspect of the product uh, that they're contributing to. And I think, you know, they're, they're all ambassadors. Everybody that's on our staff at the end of the day is an ambassador to their friends, their families. When people say, where do you work? What do you do? Uh, you know, what's your company like? If they can, if they can speak well of what we're doing and, and you never know where, that's the other thing about life is, as you know, you just never know where relationships uh, develop. You know, you and I met through a mutual uh, friend and opportunity here in, in Canada, that wasn't uh, necessarily a, a Murcom outreach to you or vice or family business outreach to me. It was it was a connection point that uh, you know if you're open to those uh, connections and those relationships. And we both reached out and said, hey, independent of this other opportunity and this relationship that we're dealing with here in Toronto, why don't we uh, why don't we touch base and get to know each other a little bit more? And uh, and good things come of that. So you know, it's also something we try and we try and tell people all the time: don't don't filter, don't. Uh, you know, be open to those networking opportunities, be open to the, uh, to the ability to, to, you know, open new doors and, and new experiences. When it comes to human capital, you're, of course, uh, entrenched in the tech space, but where do you stand in terms of working within government parameters, security and safety and online privacy, etc., or future government parameters when it comes to tech and the internet of things? Um, in some respects, I think it's it's beyond us to to necessarily opine on where things can go in technology. There there's areas of technology that obviously are developing in in AI and uh, and connectivity and sensing technologies. Privacy is obviously a huge issue. Uh, there you know there there 
obviously need to be appropriate regulations and, and protections in place so that uh, no one abuses uh, the technology uh, uh, opportunities. Um, at the same time, it's, it's not an easy discussion. You know, governments don't have an easy go of it to really try and uh, regulate something that is, is growing from a grassroots level. While people are obviously concerned about the, the negative aspects of IoT, you see the equal push for people just want the convenience and the interaction with their environments. Uh, and so there's a, there's a push and a pull that is not easy to resolve. Uh, I think conversations are really important, continuing to, to study, to, to understand where there may be some collateral effects and damages that need to be regulated or changed. Uh, this, is, this is just an evolving situation that, that is happening fast, as you say, whether it's Moore's Law or any other uh, metric for, for speed and, and change. Uh, not an easy environment. Uh, you know, as a company, Mercom obviously wants to be very responsible uh, and respectful of uh, privacy and, and building environments and, and how people interact with technology. We will take our lead many times from, you know, the technology infrastructure that comes before and, and the modalities for, for power and communication uh, and some of, the, some of the protections that are built into that. Um, but not, a, not an easy thing for companies to do. We, we want to move forward in technology, but we want to you know, safety isn't just about the environmental safety, uh, fire or, or, or other damage. Safety is about, uh, you know, safety of our kids, safety of our elderly, safety of how people live in buildings and, and how they feel psychologically about living in the buildings. You know, sometimes a little bit beyond uh, our scope uh, as, as a business proper, but definitely of interest to us as, as business leaders and as people contributing to society. Let's discuss the next generation of business leaders just briefly. Your perspective on how you view millennials and Generation Z uh, in terms of their adapting to the technological demands uh, of the business. I guess that's one side, but adapting to the demands of the business is the other. What can the next generation bring, I guess, is the question. So, you know, I've got uh, my elder, eldest son is in uh, his first year of university. I've got another son in high school. My brothers have, uh, uh, Rick has similarly aged children and Jason has much younger children as well. Uh, you know, I think from a family perspective, there are no foregone conclusions that people are entitled to, to take over the business simply because they're family. I think we've been pretty clear that, you know, based on our own experience, some external experiences uh, prior to joining the business are probably valued. Doesn't mean it's universally the case for family businesses. I got, I have lots of friends and, uh, and contacts that grew up in their business and didn't uh, necessarily work outside of it. And, and they're very successful in their own right. But for our own family, I think we like the idea of, of getting out there and, and learning and, and trying and experimenting and, and bringing something to the business. I think the next generation, any generation that comes into the business has to have a genuine interest. It shouldn't just be that, you know, I've, I've, someone has a business and someone needs a job. And so you marry the two and you put them in leadership positions because you have to be fair to the, to the business itself. Again, if you treat the business as a family member uh, proper and, and it has to be fair to the staff that are here, it has to be fair to your customers and suppliers and, and external partners. You know, again, the, it's, it's fantastic if the kids have an interest and an aptitude and, and they, they can participate, then by all means, it's a wonderful thing to have families uh, continue generation after generation after generation. But I think sometimes family business gets stuck in this idea that it just has to be a family business in perpetuity. 
and it might not be the case. Maybe there's times when uh, family management should port over to family ownership if you want to keep the business, but not necessarily run the day-to-day. Uh, you can always look at professional management teams to get involved. Um, you know, from a governance perspective, you just have to have these discussions fairly frequently and have a plan for it. And, uh, you know, obviously there's dynamics with family. If, if one person's family member wants to join and another doesn't, how do you, how do you deal with how do you deal with the fallout of that uh, at the family level, at the at the management level? But as I say, if, if you're constantly looking at what's right for the business, what's sound for business strategy and growth, and if the people, the next gen play a, a management role, fantastic, create the opportunities, introduce them to the business earlier, get them comfortable, get the people comfortable with them. If they don't, then I think families should uh, be responsible and, and make the right decisions and say, look, maybe there's other ways for these family members to interact with the business, uh, board level, ownership level, uh, perhaps uh, ancillary businesses that get set up uh, for them. There's there's ways of addressing it that aren't necessarily a direct uh, foregone conclusion that, you know, because I have a son and I'm president and CEO, that the logical thing is for him to be president and CEO next. In, in respect of what I think the next generation can bring to business, however, we know that, uh, that this, you know, millennials today and, and those that will follow them are a very tech savvy uh, group of, of uh, people. They will uh, interact with businesses and customers and markets perhaps differently than we do. I think uh, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And so as long as you're listening to what their needs and aspirations and contributions are and might be, I think you know, incrementally we can, we can change and pivot the business to ensure that they're successful when the time comes for them to take over businesses and, and run next generations. So I'm excited about what, uh, you know, sometimes you hear criticisms about the millennials and the way they work, but I'm actually quite excited. I think they're going to, they'll change the world for the better and, and technologies will follow their lead uh, largely over the next uh, three decades. If I look back on our last three. Let's move on to COVID-19, Mark. It's been, I think it's fair to say it's been challenging. Let's put that in uh, quote marks over nearly two years, to say the very least. How have you overcome the challenges presented by COVID-19? And how are you adapting to this new normal, this terrible phrase that we keep uh, hearing? Well, with respect to COVID-19, I think the lighthouse that I've personally been trying to put out, and I think the company's been trying to put out, is that you know, while there are definitive challenges and, and some people have been terribly hurt, we, we really feel for them, uh, there's been a lot of silver lining as well and things will get better. I think we, as business people and as family business owners, we have to remain optimistic that, uh, you know, this last 12 months was probably a little bit better than the 12 months prior to that. And hopefully the next 12 months will be better still. And at some point this pandemic will become endemic. Uh, you know, in the meantime, we need to take all the steps to ensure that uh, that people are safe first and foremost. Uh, again, in our particular business, it's considered an essential business. So business has to go on. And so within the confines of business having to go on and the, the COVID uh, uh, pandemic situation, we try and find that channel where, where it works. And so how do we keep people uh, safe? How do we keep them engaged? How do we keep the markets moving forward? Obviously, this year, I think uh, what you're hearing from businesses is supply chain is going to be the number one COVID issue, even more so than managing the, the health aspects of it, which I think for the most part, people have, have now uh, largely figured out, you know, so between the, the traditional social distancing and, and uh, sanitizing, keeping people clean, keeping people uh, 
uh, away when there's exposures, uh, you know, testing, and, and so forth. There's a lot of lot of initiatives around trying to manage the health aspect of it. But now we've got to get back to how, how do goods and services flow? And I think we, we there was a large shock to the system in the early days of the pandemic, and uh, the amplification of of feast and famine is is going to be felt. I think for the next. Uh, while the next year i assume at least and uh, you know hopefully things will normalize over time hopefully we don't get hit with yet more uh, variants and uh, and problems but i think the world is is learning how to manage that and uh, uh, you know if we can fix the supply chain issues i think for the most part businesses uh, will continue to 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 grow and and thrive and, and maintain optimism in in product services and economic growth I would agree with that. I'd, I'd also, I'm still wondering how much your business mentality, your, your business is all about safety. It's all about thinking about people's safety. How, how do you do that? And I wonder if that's helped you, uh, that mentality has helped you through COVID uh, in some way, perhaps more than other businesses uh, may have uh, been, been helped. I wouldn't presume more because of the nature of the business. Because I think whether you're a, a small business owner of a of a of a one geography location, or whether you're a, a large family business with multinational opportunities, everybody's thinking about the same things. I mean, fundamentally, this is coming down to people, isn't it? And, yeah. uh, and whether you're five people or five thousand, you're uh, you're you're dealing with a lot of the same issues. I think our business again uh, is essential. You need people protected in their living environments. Uh, you need people uh, interacting with technology in their living environments through this period. Uh, and so we've, we've tried to keep the uh, business as engaged and open as, as possible. Uh, you know, whether you're servicing a building for its, uh, its annual test and inspect, whether you're uh, finalizing a newly constructed building that needs uh, occupancy permits and uh, needs the products on site and, and the systems commissioned, whether you're dealing with, uh, with uh, security uh, access control in residential environments where people are, are coming and going and how they interact with the building. These are all things that are very important to us and we spend a lot of time thinking about it. And again, I, I see those as silver linings. Uh, even this, this Zoom call, as much as people are, I think, completely and maybe even utterly fatigued about uh, virtual meetings at this point, uh, it's been a godsend because you know I can imagine uh, uh, decades ago when, when people couldn't interact as productively on uh, virtual calls and video calls and, and uh, with technology to get business done. So I think the fact that we've had this pandemic during this period of time where technology can help us continue to execute our business and continue to work with people has, has, been, a, has been a plus. I think crisis management, a lot of management teams will come out of this a lot stronger. People will have learned how to, how to pivot whether it's remote work, whether it's uh, communication, whether it's motivating uh, the team to stay uh, positive in, in difficult times. I think you're going to get a lot of family businesses that come out of this pandemic a lot stronger and a lot more focused and a lot more capable. Uh, so, you know, there, I think there's been a, a lot of pluses around it and I, you know, Mercant doesn't have the, uh, doesn't have the, uh, monopoly on any of that. I think uh, all businesses are going to have that experience. Again, feeling bad for the businesses that didn't make it. There have been businesses that have been impacted. Uh, hospitality businesses in, in particular, or, uh, you know, obviously some of the airlines have suffered. We can go into the list of people that have, have had the, the net negative. But, but even those companies, I think uh, once the dust settles, people will have an opportunity to look at new business models. And if they're still passionate and interested in their space, they'll, they'll have opportunity to come back. No one can be criticized for losing a business during the pandemic because of the pandemic. It's, uh, 
it's it's just going to create more opportunities going forward. One final question for you, Mark. When it comes to the business, the achievements over the years, the, the trials, the tribulations that no doubt you've been through, um, what are you most proud of? Um, look, I, I'm very proud of my team, uh, first and foremost. I mean, the, the business, I would, it's hard not to say the business itself the growth of the business, the international expansion, the profile that we have, the work that we're doing, that's all an extreme point of pride for us. You know, we've come a long way as a business and, and we're going to continue to go a long way. But fundamentally, like, like all businesses, it's about the people and the, you know, the team's ability to react and act and, uh, and pivot where need be. And, you know, going back to my commentary about the pandemic, I've got a team that is really, really capable right now in in crisis management and coming together and, and maintaining a dynamic, fluid, flexible uh, approach to, to business and, and things. And I've just, uh, you know, I, I feel like we've, I knew we had a strong business, but seeing the stickiness again of suppliers and customers and seeing my team react, there's a real point of pride right now that there's almost nothing that can be thrown at the business that, that uh, can really uh, damage it fundamentally because it's just a strong team. Uh, executing. Mark Falbo is the president of the Mercom Group of Companies based in Vaughan in Ontario in Canada. Mark, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. You as well, Tim. Thank you very much. Stay uh, well, stay safe and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully getting together live uh, in Dubai at some point soon. Today's guest here on The Value Legacy, Episode 6, Mark Falbo, President of the Mircom Group of Companies based in Ontario in Canada. Vinod Krishnan, Managing Director of Arch, the people behind this podcast, is with me still. Vinod, really interesting guy, very, very strategic, I think it's fair to say, very focused. But what really stood out to you from the conversation? As I listened to Mark speak, Tim, there were several aspects that resonated with the triumphs and tribulations of other similar family business stories. Mark's father launched Mercom in a market which faced one of the toughest economic conditions during the period. A double-digit rate of interest would certainly be alien to the current generation of entrepreneurs, given that we've been near zero rates for a very long time after the global financial crisis. His passion to create something has been successfully passed on to his children. Mark reaffirms that pursuit and those of his brothers to join their family business as a calling with a purposeful approach. Since their businesses focus on life-saving technology and security systems, public safety, he says, is at the core of every decision that they make. Even when Mark comments on whether the next generation of the brothers' families would be invited to join the business, he points out that they do not have any entitlement to be in the operations of the business. He emphasizes that their heirs need to have a good rationale for them to take up their operational role in the family business. I also liked his take on change where he says that as the company evolves, grows and continues to be successful, his team has developed muscles in change management and therefore they do not perceive change as a threat. Finally, as you know, Tim, we've always encouraged family business to work very closely with governments. 
public safety businesses are highly regulated and I liked Mark's view that the best conversations with government are on growth and opportunity and the worst ones are inefficient and restrictive policies. I think this would be true for every business, although I feel that the publicly listed corporations would have a larger year of governments. We, as the value legacy, would love to see much more engagement between governments and family-owned businesses towards symbiotic growth. What really stood out to me, uh, even above the, the government conversation, if you like, was the attitude to change. There was this real absence of fear of change, I felt, just as, as though change is just normal. And I guess, you know, change is. And I asked him that question, does your lack of anxiety over change offer you an increased I guess, agility, perhaps. And he was very positive uh, about that, as he was uh, about the business overall. Vinod Krishnan is the Managing Director of Arch. Good to chat to you once again. All the best for the festive season and, of course, for 2022. We'll hear more from you then. Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. And we look forward to another season of The Value Legacy through 2022. And that's it for episode six of The Value Legacy. As ever, if you can give us a like and hit subscribe, we'd be much obliged. Now, we're back with more family business stories and much more next year or this year, if you're listening in 2022. The details on the much more are to come. Look out, listen out for those. In the meantime, wherever you're listening, all the best for the new year, 2022.